say that we're going to talk about a particular way of looking at the atonement. And the atonement is, is basically, it's the idea, it's theories about what happened cosmically, theologically, spiritually, and otherwise in the relationship between God and humanity when Jesus died on the cross. So last week, um, I got to geek out a little bit over movies and comic book heroes and Star Wars and all of that. This week, none of that, I promise. I'm just going to be a theology nerd this week and talk a little bit about some big theological terms. But first, before I do any of that, we're going to be rooted in the Gospel of Luke this week in chapter 22. And we're going to bounce around a little bit, but I'm going to start out by reading the actual text from the Gospel of Luke where Jesus uh, passes, where Jesus dies. So beginning in verse 44 of Luke 22. It was now about noon and darkness covered the whole earth until about three o'clock while the sun stopped shining. Then the curtain in the sanctuary tore down the middle. Crying out in a loud voice, Jesus said, Father, into your hands I entrust my life. After he said this, he breathed for the last time. When the centurion saw what happened, he praised God, saying, It's really true. This man was righteous. All the crowds who had come together to see this event returned to their homes, beating their chests after seeing what had happened. And everyone who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance observing these things. Will you pray with me? Loving God, the event of the death of Jesus on the cross, perhaps the most pivotal moment in the history of humanity is one we're still wrestling with and talking about. And, and we continue to do that even this morning. And so I pray now that via your Holy Spirit, you will open our hearts and minds to receive a word from you. And I pray that that's what this is. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing to you, O oh God, our rock and our redeemer. Pray this in Jesus' name and all the holy names of God. Amen. So I want to start out um, just taking a look at a few of the, of the songs that we are talking about that sing about this idea of Jesus is my sacrificial substitutionary sin sponge, one of the things that immediately comes to mind is the number of songs that we have in our hymnody that talk about the blood of Jesus. All kinds of blood language in all kinds of songs. Um, there are, here's one that I, I uh, Stephanie actually told me about. Oscar, will you put up that first lyric there? No, not blamed. I'm, you are so helpful. There's a song called There Is a Fountain. There is a fountain full of blood. There is a fountain that I see filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's vein. The sinners, sinners plunged beneath that blood lose all their guilty stains. So you maybe get the idea of why we sort of had some fun with the topic of, and the title of this particular sermon. The next one I'll point out, will you turn it to the next song there? This is another old hymn. 
I will sing of my Redeemer and his wondrous love to me on the cruel cross he suffered from the curse to set me free. Sing, O sing of my Redeemer, with his blood he purchased me. On the cross he sealed my pardon, paid the debt, and made me free. Another one of those songs that talks about Jesus taking the place of us and his blood shed means our blood doesn't get shed and there's some substitutionary work that happens there in those songs that we'll talk more about in a bit. The next song is one that's more uh, recent and this is one that's been very popular probably over the last 10 to 15 years, a song called In Christ Alone by a guy named Stuart Townen who's written um, a few modern day hymns that show up in praise sets at uh, especially larger evangelical churches. And this particular part of this song has been somewhat controversial. We sing, till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied for every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ, I live. Now this song was so popular and actually the rest of it is really lovely. It's a lovely tune. So um, I'm going to be honest, one of the things that we did early on in the life of our church uh, when we first started St. John's Covenant, which became St. John's Community Church, when we first started singing, that we wanted to sing this song, so we just changed the lyrics. We changed the wrath of God was satisfied to uh, the love of God was magnified, and that seemed to work. And in fact, that became a rather popular thing. All kinds of churches were changing the lyric. Only one problem. Stuart Townend came out in an interview and said, listen, if you're going to sing my song, sing it the way I wrote it. That is orthodox theology. That's the correct theology when it comes to the cross. If you're going to sing it, please don't change the words to the song. I wrote it that way for a reason. So we just stopped singing the song. <laughs> we just decided, we, okay, then we don't, we're not going to sing that song anymore. But changing lyrics is something we still do. We still, because we, we come across songs that are, are lovely tunes, have some great theology, but we need to change certain verbiage because this blood language, this sacrificial atonement language becomes problematic. And so, for example, the song that we, uh, that we sang this morning, could you put the next one up for me, Oscar? Man of Sorrows, the song we just got done singing, the actual words are, Man of Sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a savior. We sing his beloved because, quite frankly, the theology of all of us being depraved and ruined sinners doesn't exactly fit in the ethos of our church. It's not how we roll. And so we, we, we can sing his beloved to reclaim because the beloved had been reclaimed since the very beginning. And we believe that that's what Christ is all about, is having reclaimed us from the very beginning. Next ver verse Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. Once again, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a savior. Now, all of this language is based in, comes out of what is probably the most popular and pervasive atonement theory in all of Christianity and has been for a few hundred years now, okay? And an atonement theory is a theory that's been developed around what happened, why did Jesus die on the cross, what, how did that impact humanity, 
how did that impact our relationship with God? Right? The most popular one of those theories, and here's where I get a little bit theology nerd in me, is the penal substitutionary atonement theory. The penal substitutionary atonement theory. And this is basically, basically the idea that God is holy, and God's holiness cannot abide sinful humanity. Can't put up with it, can't come near it, has to be distanced from it. And in fact, it's that sin and those sinful humans that incur God's wrath. God is angry because of these sinful humans. And the only way that that wrath can be appeased is through some sort of, of punishment, in this case, violent punishment. And in this specific case, the punishment that Christ received on the cross in our place. We're the ones who deserve to have been punished, but Christ took our place on the cross. And if we believe that, to carry on that theology, that atonement theology towards soteriology, which is a big word for, for salvation, what does it mean to be saved? Or If we carry that line of thinking through, then if we believe that that happened, that Jesus took our place and was punished in our stead, if we believe that, then we are saved from eternal punishment by having that belief. And we will spend eternity with God. Now, this was the theology that I was taught. This is the theology that I grew up with. This is how I understood the work of the cross. It's the theology that first scared me into asking Jesus into my heart as my personal Lord and Savior at a lay witness mission conference in the cafetorium of Mount Pleasant High School in Mount Pleasant, Michigan, when I was six years old. A man who was yelling loudly from the stage, like had some pretty threatening things to say about hell that I didn't like at all, and had some pretty, pretty fantastic things to say about heaven that I was all about. And so my little six-year-old self said, yeah, I'll I'll ask Jesus into my heart and I will go ahead and, and become a Christian because I want the reward and I definitely don't want that punishment and I believe that Jesus died in my place. And actually, I professed that for much of my young life and I can even say that I, as a good little Christian kid, I converted, I led other people to the Lord, to use some evangelical terminology, I led people to be saved, if you will, by speaking in those categories by using that same understanding of the work of the cross. But I'm going to tell you a dirty little secret that I had the whole time. The whole time. When I started to reach the age of reason and I started to think and process more deeply my own faith and my own understanding of who God is, I realized that this, this view of the cross, I hated it. I didn't like it at all. It didn't make sense to me, for one, and it seemed awfully cruel. To me, as I processed who I thought God was, I kept thinking, if God is love, if God is love and all-loving, then why would God require the cruelty of the cross? That doesn't make sense to me. It seemed crazy. And like I said, it seemed cruel. And ultimately, I realized that it made me obey and, and love God, if you will, out of fear rather than out of loving devotion. The same way I often found myself obeying my own abusive mother out of fear 
rather than out of loving devotion. So it came as a huge relief to me, and it wasn't until I went to seminary at North Park Seminary in Chicago that I first discovered that this is not the only way that people see the work of the cross. This is not the only atonement theory. In fact, this one, this penal substitutionary atonement theory, has is fairly new in the whole span of Christian history. Early Christians, the earliest Christians, did not believe in this way. They believed in following this way of Jesus and sacrificial love, but they didn't believe in this transactional atonement theory. That didn't really become popularized till right around the Protestant Reformation. And then some real bigwigs took it on and, and moved it forward. Guys like Martin Luther and John Calvin, and even our own beloved Wesley brothers, John and Charles Wesley, right? They all, they all profess this same understanding of the cross, but that's not the only way to look at the cross. And in fact, in fact, that particular take on the atonement has been widely and roundly criticized, if not dismissed, because it is highly problematic and even dangerous. First of all, it furthers the myth of redemptive violence, the idea that we can bring about peace through some violent act, through some violent means. And we've learned throughout history, throughout the history of the world, but our, the history of our country and the history of Christianity in the United States, we've learned that these violent acts that we often do in the name of Jesus don't bring about peace as the Prince of Peace would have us have it, but instead just perpetuate more violence. Violence brings about violence. It doesn't lead to peace, and we've discovered that, and we know that historically. The other reason that that this particular notion of the atonement, this particular theory of the atonement has been criticized is that it, it also furthers this idea of scapegoating. You know, scapegoating? And this makes sense, actually, because we can trace this theology back to the Hebrew scriptures, particularly in the book of Leviticus. Last week, my friend Adam uh, who's the pastor at Christ Church Portland, he preached on this idea of scapegoating, and he quoted one of our, he pointed to the wisdom of one of our favorite theologians who writes this. Oscar, could you put that quote up for me? In Leviticus 16, we see the brilliant ritualization of what we now call scapegoating, and we should indeed feel sorry for the demonized goat. On the Day of Atonement, a priest laid hands on an escaping goat, placing all the sins of the Jewish people from the previous year onto the animal. Then the goat was beaten with reeds and thorns and driven out into the desert. And the people went home rejoicing, just as European Christians did after burning a supposed heretic at the stake, or American whites did after the lynching of black men. Whenever the sinner is excluded, our ego is delighted and feels relieved and safe. It sort of works, but only for a while. Usually the illusion only deepens and becomes catatonic, blind, and repetitive. 
Because, of course, scapegoating did not really work to eliminate the evil in the first place. Jesus came to radically undo this illusory scapegoat mechanism, which is found in every culture in some form. He became the scapegoat to reveal the universal lie of scapegoating. As you can see, the idea of why Jesus died, it being pointed in this direction, is deeply troubling. And for, so for this and many other reasons, we here at Portsmouth Union tend to avoid singing songs that reflect that particular atonement theology because it is problematic and even dangerous. However, we are still stuck with the fact that Jesus did actually die a death, an even bloody death on the cross. That still happened. We can't ignore that. Pretty pivotal in the story of our faith. And we're then presented with this all-too-obvious question. If it isn't about ransom or substitution or soaking up all the sin in the world to save us from wrath and whatnot, then why did Jesus die? Why, why the cross? Why? And I will tell you, there are plenty of other theories and explanations to choose from. If you Google atonement theory, you could go down a rabbit hole pretty easily and read all about different theories. And if you decide to do that, like I did this week, if you do that, you'll realize that all of them have their own issues. All of them present problems and questions, and all of them are somewhat debatable. So I'm not going to try to answer that question directly this morning by coming up with Pastor Andy's theory of the atonement. I'm not going to do that. Instead, I want to take a stab at two other questions. And the answers to these questions, I think, can begin to, to point us in the direction of, of trying to figure out why or wrestling with the question of why. And we can find answers to these questions in the scriptures that we're going to take a look at this morning. I think, and I especially think we see in our text from Luke's account of the Passion, that maybe God is more interested in having us see the answer to these other two questions. And the first one, the first question is where. Not why, but where. As in, where is God in all of this? And the answer to that one, as we read in Scripture, is right here, always with you and with us. Always right here. In Luke 22, verses 14 and 15, we read, when the time came, Jesus took his place at the table and the apostles joined him. He said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. You see, Jesus is all about being with us, being with all of us. The mystery of Jesus is that he's present with all of us, every one of us, and within us, even at our very worst. Think about it. He's sitting down at the table with these folks who are eventually going to betray, lie about him. But he says, I still want to be with you. I've longed to be with you even though I know these things. At the end of Matthew's gospel, we read, look, 
I myself will be with you every day until the end of this present age. God is with us and even within us all the time, even when we feel like God isn't, even when we feel like God couldn't possibly be anywhere near us. I think it's funny, sometimes we will talk about God's presence. We'll talk about a particular event that happened usually to go pretty well for us, and we'll say, oh yeah, God really showed up there. And I kind of have to chuckle at that as if God like pulled up in the car and got out and did God's thing, right? That's not really the way God works. God was present always. It's just that we managed to recognize God's presence in that moment. God longs to be with us, to be near us in each and every circumstance. And we see this especially on the cross. One of my favorite pastors and theologians writes this. On the cross, suffering the worst a person can suffer, Jesus asked, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a question, but it's also a window into a whole new way of understanding God. What we learn from Jesus, what we see in his pain, abandonment, and agony is that God is there too. God is in the best and also in the worst. God is in the presence and also in the absence. God is in the power and also in the powerlessness. God is there too. God is there in the tears, the questions, the despair, the blood, the lament. God is there sitting with us in the ashes. When we shake our fists at the sky and declare that there is no God. This is the unexpected subversion of the cross. Turning so many of our ideas about God on their heads. Insisting that God is so for us that God is willing to take on the worst the world can bring and suffer it, absorb it, and feel it right down to the last breath. That leads to the other question that I want to tackle this morning that may start to point us toward how to wrestle with this why question of the cross. The other question is for whom? For whom? For whom did this happen? For whom is God? For whom is, is Jesus? And the answer in, in big, loud, boisterous, definite, definite affirmation is all of us. All of us. Every one of us. What happened on the cross was for us, to show us that God is for us, not against us, but for us, not angry with us, not so filled with rage that, that God had to take that rage out on someone and therefore it was Jesus and not us. Thank goodness we are saved from that wrath. Uh-uh, that's not, that's not God's mentality. It's not how it works. Part of the lengthy text for this morning from Luke's gospel includes Jesus' words at this last meal before with his disciples before his death. And these are probably pretty familiar to you because we say some version of these words every week when we come to the table. After taking the bread and giving thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after the meal and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. Jesus freely gives his life for us, 
for you because ultimately God is for you. As he's hanging on the cross, suffering tremendously, Luke records him saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus is for us even when we aren't for him. He predicts Peter's denial. He predicts that all of his followers will abandon him when it's time for his crucifixion. But his love for them never diminishes. He is for them even when they are against him, and the same is true for all of us. What Jesus did on the cross was to proclaim, proclaim loudly and clearly just how much he is for us. For our freedom from sin and death and guilt and shame, for our flourishing in life, in love, and in community. I think that as a church, that's a healthy reminder for us. I think most of us can maybe at some point have a tendency to think, man, God can't possibly be very happy with me right now. In fact, maybe God's really mad at me right now. And the assurance that we get from the gospel is that that's just not true. God's love is never failing. God is always for you. But here's the other word that I think that we need to hear as a church. Is that it's not exclusive. This same love, this same work is not just for us. God is for everyone. Everyone. God's mysterious and massive love for all humanity and all of creation is reflected on the cross. And that love is for all. Not just Christians. Not just United Methodists or disciples. Not just people who attend church regularly. Not for Catholics or Protestants exclusively. Not for people who have their act together and can show up with a smile. Not just for those. Not for those that we would think are the least in the lost. Not just for those either. Jesus said, when I am lifted up, meaning when he was lifted up on the cross, when I am lifted up, I will draw all people to me. All people. That is how radically for us Jesus is. He was lifted up on the cross to show the world that he was with them in their suffering. That his love for them led him to be crucified in order to dispel this myth of redemptive violence, to end the cycle of scapegoating, and to show us how in, in giving our lives to this way of being for and with one another because we love one another, even our enemies, then we can in turn experience the presence of and solidarity with the divine, with God's very self. Perhaps when we are attentive to the answers to those other two questions, where and for whom, we recognize that God is with us and for us even as we continue to wrestle with the question of why. God is with us in the questioning, not providing answers, not prov but providing presence. Even when we are weak and suffering and questioning God's very existence. 
maybe, maybe then we will see that the mystery of the cross is not necessarily a riddle that's meant to be solved, a question with a definite answer that can be laid out with some neat and tidy theory. No, the mystery of the cross is the free gift that's meant to be received, to be believed, but most importantly, to be practiced and lived out as people committed to following in the way of Jesus, even to death. Will you pray with me? Loving God, We thank you for the model that you give us of sacrificial love. We thank you for the way that you, you gave and you gave and you gave right up until the very end. We thank you that you have flipped things on their head, that you, you have done away with this idea of scapegoating, this myth of redemptive violence, and instead you've shown us this way of sacrificial love, this way of solidarity with those who suffer regularly, those who have been killed. This is your way. And this is a way of truth and of life that you invite us into. And so we pray, God, that we would hear that anew this morning, that you would help us to to wrestle ourselves with what does that mean in, in our lives? What does sacrificial love look like? What does your love magnified in us look like? And we pray that you would show us that and that you would give us opportunities to live into that. We give you thanks for your grace that covers it all. And we pray this in Jesus' name and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.